read from God's holy word. Revelation chapter 6, beginning in verse 1, I'll read to verse 8. And we will cover this morning the first four of the seven seals that in essence hold the scroll closed. These things, Christ the Lamb, though slain, is standing, the Lion of the tribe of Judah. And we see in these things Christ's work upon the earth even in times past. Revelation chapter 6, beginning in verse 1. After I beheld, when the Lamb had opened one of the seals, and I heard one of the four beasts say, as it were the noise of thunder, come and see. Therefore I beheld, and lo, there was a white horse, and he that sat on him had a bow, and a crown was given unto him. And he went forth conquering, that he might overcome And when he had opened the second seal, I heard the second beast say, Come and see. And there went out another horse that was red, and power was given to him that sat thereon to take peace from the earth, and that they should kill one another. And there was given unto him a great sword. And when he had opened the third seal, I heard the third beast say, Come and see. Then I beheld, and lo, a black horse, and he that sat on him had balances in his hand. And I heard a voice in the midst of the four beasts say, A measure of wheat for a penny, and three measures of barley for a penny, and oil and wine hurt thou not. And when he had opened the fourth seal, I heard the voice of the fourth beast say, Come and see. And I looked, and behold, a pale horse And his name that sat on him was death, and hell followed after him. And power was given unto them over the fourth part of the earth to kill with sword and with hunger and with death and with beasts of the earth. Thus far, the reading of God's words, you may be seated. Let me pray now for the blessing of the preaching of God's holy word. Lord, we who are able to know and discern many things, are still reliant upon your spirit to know the word, that that word might be effectual unto salvation, that we might not only be hearers but doers of the word, that we be like Mary and Samuel and David, eager to hear, willing to repent, longing to please And be blessed by your presence. And so, Lord, we ask this morning that you might speak. For your servants are listening. For this we pray in your name. Amen. Some of you may be familiar with the book of Revelation. It comes at the end of the Bible. In fact, if there is ever a book of the Bible that even the world is familiar with, and the allusions and direct quotations of it that we find even in culture, whether it is movies or songs, you have heard many lines spoken of through the book of Revelation. And in some ways this is good. In some ways this can prevent us from being open and soft and without objection to the simple understanding and preaching of the Word of God. 
Now, what many pastors and theologians and writers and thinkers have done is they have sought to conceal what God has made open and manifest. It is the book of Revelation, after all. It is that manifestation, that revelation of the the working out of Christ taking for himself through obedience to the will of the Father, that place of all power in heaven and on earth. And with that rise to power comes effect. And we ought not live as though that is not the case. Even in our own political system, we look at the presidents down through time and we think one is very much like the other. And most of them are bad. And here's the little secret. They are all men with feet of clay. And they are more like Nebuchadnezzar than they are our Redeemer. They are power hungry. That is what we are, is it not? By default... We are prone to mistrust, and even Christians today are prone to doubt and neglect the glory of this particular scene. We live in a sort of quaint existence, as though Christ is not ascended, and we are content with our suffering, never to gaze upon the glory of Christ's victory. And it is that that gives context to our suffering. And power and glory and hope and comfort and strength. That we can go to the gallows, to the dungeons, to those places of imprisonment and suffering and death because Christ is risen with hope. And so we suffer not for suffering's sake. We labor not for the sake of labor or so that we can post about our misery or our struggles but rather to give glory and honor to Christ. Now, as we move through the book of Revelation, it is here, especially in chapter 6, where many interpreters part ways, never to meet again until later in the book. And so you have to make some decisions, and those decisions as it relates to interpretation must never be alone. Revelation, which is apocalyptic in its genre, its literature, is to be informed by the whole of what, has, what God has already revealed, especially in the book of Daniel, Ezekiel, Zechariah, and those other sections of Scripture and the allusions made in previous passages. And so it is my endeavor this morning to do that, to give us understanding. And so two points that I want to make this morning. The first, beginning to unseal. Beginning to unseal. And then secondly, the four horsemen. The four horsemen. Let's look at this first point, beginning to unseal. Now, we need to know, and we need to know exactly where we are in the events in the book of Revelation so that we might be faithful interpreters of the word of God. The scroll is not opened yet. It is a scroll upon which writing is on the inside and outside. And this scroll is wound, it is rolled, and on the outside of this scroll, which represents the reign of Christ Jesus in heaven and on earth, given to him by the Father, that through his obedience, he now wears the crown of victory over the grave. And not just death, 
but even hell will be rolled underfoot. That judgment, that presence of power, evil power upon the earth. The scroll is not yet opened, and it is here in chapter 6, verses 1 through 8, that the first four seals are unsealed or loosed. Now, the reason why this is important, to know where we are, is so that we might understand what we're reading. This is how we often operate. How many of you have become experts on Ukraine already? You were experts one month ago on COVID, weren't you? And prior to that, the latest particular issue. And so in your expertise, you endeavor to proclaim to the world the content of the information that you possess. But like anything, even just the events of earth, they are too high and too wonderful for you to understand but not God. God's wisdom and understanding are beyond imagination. Not only does he understand the global political conflicts of our days, but he has ordained them. Not only does he know all the hair on Putin's head and Zelensky's, but what they had for breakfast and what is in their hearts, and not only their hearts, but even our small children whose hearts and minds we don't understand. We don't get it, but God does. And so for those who do not understand, there are some things that we can. And God has laid down for us in Scripture clear teachings that are connected not only to God's plan for redemption in your life, your existential, your personal salvation, the gospel, but the whole of redemptive history is in some way laid down for us so that we might understand what God is doing for and to the world. And Revelation is a key part of that. Now many of you may say, and I have said this myself, this is why after almost 11 years of preaching, I'm just now coming to the book of Revelation. And one of the great regrets that I have in ministry is not preaching it sooner which would have required, obviously, faithful study of it sooner, and less this intimidation that was impressed upon me, not by faithful Christians, but by lazy Christians. Christians with too much imagination and very little little hermeneutical commitment that Scripture is used to interpret Scripture. Now, this is what I mean by that, lest I sound too negative which is often my tendency. Many of us, when we come to Scripture and we come to the hard parts, we go over them. We go around them. And we say to ourselves, this is for pastors and theologians. This is not the way of faithfulness. Here is why we go around them. Because we wish to walk upon ground that is well-tread because it is easier to walk upon. And there are sections of Revelation that are tough going. Right now in my woods, there are thickets that I could not walk through that require taming, manicuring. Revelation is like at times a very thick thicket. It's tough going. But we ought not let that intimidate or keep us from walking. 
This is what often happens then in the life of many believers when they come to the book of Revelation. They say it'll all pan out in the end. We call these people pan-millennials. Why do we not apply this thinking to justification? Or any other biblical doctrine? Why this? And I think this is the reason why. As it relates to the book of Revelation, taking a stance means entering into difficult conversations. Here is what has happened to me since I have come out of the post-millennial closet. The first thing anybody wants to talk to me about is how I'm wrong. Not about salvation, but about my eschatological views. And I say to them, you hope I'm right, don't you? Here is the problem. There are too many Eeyores and not enough Tiggers. Right? Many Christians think that to carry the cross of Christ has to look as though we are downcast, not only in our faces, but our lives. And do you know why we often look downcast? It's the same reason why people get on social media and cry. Why? It's going to be okay. That's what they want to hear. This is what we are addicted to. It is the addiction. It is the obsession with losing. Because we wish to give losing and put losing into the context of our own selfish cross-bearing. But here is the paradox of Scripture. You win by losing. You live by dying. You are reborn in death. And so what is happening in Revelation is the fallout, it is the consequence, it is the fruit, not of a Christ who suffers and dies over and over and over again, but a Savior who has died once, he has taken the throne, and he is no longer meek and mild. But he is the one who rides out on the white horse in judgment and grace to bring to the earth and upon the earth the glorious benefit of his resurrected, ascended glory. Now here is what I mean. I don't want you to be pan-millennials. I don't want you to just think, well, Christ wins in the end. He does. Here's what I want you to be concerned with. What will happen with you? Let Christ take care of the details. But how will you be faithful? Because oftentimes when you say, oh, it'll all work out in the end, what inevitably happens in the life of a believer is you say, I'll just sit here and wait. That is not faithfulness. Recently, my sons played church league basketball. And in terms of win-loss record, there was not much to be proud of. But in terms of full effort... I was very proud. You can't win the game alone, but you can hustle. You can do your part in the work of the kingdom. Reformation. Those of you who are here who are visitors listening, I don't want you to be a fatalist. I want you to take on hell, not with a water pistol, 
That is not faithful thinking, but with the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit in the arms race of spiritual power is not a water pistol. He's, it. He's the only power. Christ in his spirit tells us that as the word goes out into the nations, it will bring fruit result. And that result will be the transformation of sinners' lives. I don't want you to feel guilty that you haven't done enough. I haven't done enough. I have not labored at times in my life with the optimism, not of the present circumstance, but the future promise of an inheritance. And we are to rightly divide the word of God so that it might affect our lives. I'm not saying be post-mill. In fact, those eschatological perspectives are not even really seen in the book of Revelation, like they are in other books of the Bible. But I am asking you to be optimistic about the fruits of our labors. And even though Reformation may fold, and I pray by God's grace it never will, the kingdom of Christ will never fail. All right, that's my first point. Now let's get to the four horsemen, because I know you're going, come on, can we get to the four horsemen? (laughs) So... It must be said that there are no small number of opinions about what the riders of the horses are and what they represent, what they stand for, and how we are to rightly interpret them in light of their relationship to redemptive history and the continued expression of Christ's work in history to bring about the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem we see in Mark 13 and John chapter 2, but also the furthering of the heavenly Jerusalem that is to come as it is in heaven. The majority, certainly of these early symbolisms, are fulfilled in the destruction of the temple circa AD 66 to 70. Okay, I've taken a position there. I'm not saying this has to be your position, but I think this is the right interpretation of the things that we see. So, in Revelation chapter 6, as these seals are being unsealed, What is about to be set loose upon the earth is, without debate, the unfolding of the power and plan of Christ Jesus upon the earth, upon the land. Upon that land, Jerusalem, and that temple made by human hands. For what Christ is preparing his people for is not hope and confidence in that temple built by human hands, but the temple of Christ's own body and the coming of the church of the Lord Jesus Christ in the clouds and the understanding that it is not here or there, but wherever the saints of God gather in worship or in spirit and in truth. Is this not what God's own prophetic word has prepared us for? The many apocalyptic visions in Ezekiel, Daniel, Zechariah, and elsewhere, the temple must be destroyed. And our confidence in that which is built by human hands must give way to the one who was destroyed but then raised as the true temple, the one in whom we dwell, the one who is the gate, the door, through whom we enter and fellowship with the Godhead and with one another. What we find in Revelation chapter 6 is Ezekiel 5 coming true. God is bringing real judgment against Jerusalem and all who reject Christ as king of heaven and earth. Now, 
As we look at this text, we look at verse 1. After I beheld, when the Lamb had opened one of the seals, I had heard one of the four beasts, or the angels that we read of in chapter 4 and 5, say, as it were, the noise of thunder, a very loud call to come and see. Now, some of your translations just read, come, but it's similar. Come and look. Come and see what the Lord will do. And this is a repeated invitation four times. These four times, these four seals, as they are being unsealed, loosed, John is invited to come and see. And as John is invited, so too you and me. We need to see what is happening. Now, see means more than look. See means understand. To come to an awareness of what God is doing. Now, John has, in his experience already in the book of Revelation, dealt with a wealth of emotion. Fear, shock, awe, sorrow. All of these things are acquainted with dwelling in the presence of Almighty God. Now, when you come to worship, you should be prepared to feel And if you are left emotionally unchanged, it is because you have forgotten in whose presence you dwell and the command that he ought to have over your heart and the stakes that you are to have in his kingdom. We feel more with the garbage that Hollywood puts out than we often do with the scriptures that we open and read. Why is that? Why is that? Sometimes we expend all of our emotion on the weak. And we save little of it for Sunday. Or sometimes parents, one of the emotions you often feel on Sunday morning is the wrath you have towards your children (laughs) and the frustration. And they don't see the wrath of God against sin rightly or the joy you are to have in his presence. And so this repeated invitation like all invitations to come and to see, is to marvel at the things that God is doing. You need to look. You need to stop looking elsewhere, and you need to look. And so, brothers and sisters, let's look and see what Christ is doing. All right, the first horse. Revelation chapter 6, verse 1, we see the call to see. Therefore I beheld... Or I saw, and lo, children, that just means something's coming. What happens next? There was a white horse, and he that sat on him had a bow and a crown was given unto him, and he went forth conquering that he might overcome. Now, the first question you have, when you're not given a glossary or a a list of actors is, who is this and what's happening? Here we have a white horse and a rider upon its back. The rider had a bow, a crown was placed upon his head, and he came forth conquering and to conquer. This is a warring rider. Now there are a number of interpretations about who this is, and this is where being a student of the Scriptures helps us. In Psalm 45 and Habakkuk 3, we read of the Redeemer, the Messiah, as a mighty man who goes out to war. You wouldn't know this, would you, by much of the preaching in evangelical churches today? Right? 
We don't think of Christ as the warring Messiah. We think of him as like a a local barista in your city coffee shop. He's gentle. He's almost culturally relevant. He listens to all the new music. He's familiar with all the movie references. It is within the minds of men, is it not, in our hearts to fashion the Redeemer even after ourselves? And it makes sense in a world like ours that we often forget this Christ. He is a mighty man of war. Now, the war that Christ brings is good. And so even though there are a variety of views that this writer is the Antichrist, that he was a Roman emperor or one in particular, or that he is Christ himself, I'm going to, as it were, stake my flag on this. Psalm 45, 4. In your majesty write out victoriously for the cause of truth and meekness and righteousness. Let your right hand teach you awesome deeds. Your arrows are sharp in the heart of the king's enemies. The peoples fall under you. Or Habakkuk 3. Was your wrath against the rivers, O Lord? Was your anger against the rivers or your indignation against the sea when you rode on the horses on your chariots of salvation? You stripped the sheath from your bow, calling for many arrows. You split the earth with rivers. It is the fulfillment of Old Testament prophecies. Zechariah 6, verses 1 through 8. Ezekiel chapter 5. There is not time at least today, to move through these things. But what we find are God's promises, his prophecies that the Messiah will be the one who rides out in judgment against his own people who have rejected his covenant promises and stipulations. A stipulation is simply, if you do this, then this. If you obey, there is life. If you disobey, there is curse. And time and time again in the word of God, we read these covenant promises and covenant stipulations such that no man is without excuse. Or else where we read, kiss the son lest he be angry with you and you perish in the way. What is Jerusalem? If it was not the great apostate city, inhabited by those who in the main rejected Christ and instead of saying Hosanna, though many did, in the main, Jerusalem put Christ to death. Not even Rome did this, but the very people of God. The Old Testament, Old Covenant people of God rejected Christ. And so as Christ rides out to war... The primary object in history is that great city that betrayed the covenant, Jerusalem. And that great house that became a house of idolatry, not a house of prayer, a house for the nations, but a house that sought to take for themselves the promises of God and keep them from the world. And the church can do this today, can she not? It's easy to do that. It's comfortable It's hard to want the world to be brought into the church. And this was one of the great sins that Christ judged Israel for. And in fact, what we're finding in Revelation chapter 6, verses 1 through 8, is a judgment prefigured and shown 
early in the Gospels where Christ goes into the temple and he drives out the money changers. Now, many say God doesn't want commerce in the church. That's fine. But a lot of that is a hermeneutic that is built upon a rejection of what Roman Catholics were doing in the age of the Reformation. And they were selling the pathway to glory. What the Jews were doing was they turned the court of the Gentiles into a place where Gentiles could not go. It is though we were to meet for worship on Sunday and on the door say, visitors not welcome. But that's the whole point, is it not? Of the Abrahamic covenant, Christ comes to Abraham and he says, I will make you the father of a great nation and by my blessing of you, all the nations of earth shall be blessed. You and I, Gentiles, I don't know how many of you, have Jewish mothers. I don't know. Some of us may have Jewish lineage. But by and large, we're Gentiles. And yet we are part of the kingdom of Christ. Because Christ has come forth on the horse. And he has brought judgment upon those who have rejected him. And brought peace to those who embrace him. And so here in Revelation chapter 6, Christ rides forth in judgment against the city and the temple. Now, who did he do this through? The nation of Rome. But then there's another horse, the red horse. And this red horse moves forth with the sword in order to remove peace from the land. Not the earth, but first the land. Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the utter ends of the earth. And so these prophecies given to John, yes, prior to the fall and sack of Jerusalem, are testimonies that it is not Rome. Washington is not a primary actor. Rome is not a primary actor. Your public school boards are not primary actors. You are no primary actor. Your pastor, your session, we all serve at the will of the one who sits upon the throne. Righteous or unrighteous, all according to God's decrees. And so what we find here is that Christ sends forth war. And the way that he does that is he removes peace. Parents, I want you to think of it this way. Go out of town. Couples, leave home, leave your children to themselves. Just leave them for a week. See what happens. All that is needed for evil to thrive is for good men to do nothing. When God removes from the nations this glorious gift of even common grace, it is often called, the result is what? What do we find in and of our nation today? We don't even speak the same language, even though it's English. We are thrust into a state of chaos, and that chaos is what? It is the manifestation of God's judgment. And it should break our hearts. Yes, it should cause us frustration, maybe to vent a little bit on social media, but it should drive us to our knees in prayer that God would show mercy and call us to action. This red horse goes forth and the prince of peace removes peace 
When we read of Christ as the Prince of Peace, it is not that Christ brings only peace. It's that he is the Lord of peace. And he can give it and he can take it away, all in relationship to our response to him, the Prince of Peace. And then there is the black horse. This particular writer comes forth with a balance or scales in his hand. And he is the manifestation of famine and poverty upon the land. And at the time of the sack of Jerusalem, many starved to death. And we find this as a fulfillment of Lamentations 26, Lamentations 5. When you begin to weigh your food and you're not on a diet, it means you're broke. That there's very little left. Like Elijah and the flower. Or Joseph, who brings salvation to Israel despite drought and famine. Who do you think controls the seasons? Well, who do the nations think control the seasons? They do. Right? Even now we find people calling. Maybe y'all saw this recently, an article in CNN. I told you this was going to happen. Many people did. Close your churches because of the spread of a disease. Now it's perhaps in order to prevent the rising tides of the melting sea, uh, ice, polar ice caps, we should stop driving in cities on Sunday. Does that surprise you? It should not. Why Sunday? Can't we just cancel kids' sports? That would be great. No driving on Saturday. That would really save me an enormous amount of time. But why Sunday? Why Sunday? Because the nations are allied against the king of heaven. This is a spiritual conflict. Don't forget it. Despite the the sort of secular lens the world wants you to look through, everything is spiritual. It's all religious. And it all comes down to this. Do you worship the one who is on the throne of heaven and earth? Or do you worship the principalities and powers of the air? So, here comes this black horse. And he brings to Israel, he brings to Jerusalem famine, suffering, misery. And then there is the pale horse. The original word is chloros. It doesn't mean pale. It's that color parents, your children turn right before they throw up. And you say, you look green. It's a green, sickly color. It is the color of plague and pestilence. Here is what I want you to think of. All that Christ did to Egypt, he did to Israel. Why? Because they rejected him. We think of Egypt and all of those plagues that were brought about upon them. And Christ was saying this. Listen, listen, listen and look at what's happening. Let my people go. And what did the Pharaoh do? He thought himself a god, didn't he? In all his arrogance and power, the wealth of the pharaohs thought themselves to be God. And what did God do? All of those plagues were manifestations of their broken, idolatrous religion and the weakness of the man who stood at the top. 
Egypt is not unique in the nations, in the history of the world. Pharaoh is Genghis Khan. Pharaoh is the Caesars. Pharaoh are any men who ally themselves in power against Christ and his people. What Christ is doing is he is bringing plagues against Jerusalem. And what we learn is this. Do not, do not reject the offer of salvation in the manifestation, in the clear preaching and teaching of the Messiah. This is what Israel did. And instead of saying, Hosanna, they said, crucify him. Now, one question you might ask is this. To what degree do these judgments, which were brought against Jerusalem, that city of rebellion and idolatry, like the judgments that God brings against any who reject the Messiah, are they the same? Now, Revelation chapter 6, verses 1 through 8 is not futurist. It is not about something that is to come. It is about a clear judgment against Jerusalem, against those who denied Christ, and it is also a warning. This has happened. This has taken place. And so the fulfillment of Revelation chapter 6, verses 1 through 8, has been fulfilled. But the principles of rejecting the gospel and the subsequent covenant cursings that come upon those who reject Christ are the same. And here is the warning. Get your heart out of Egypt. Do not be like those who see the glory of God manifested to you and you say, no, I don't believe it. Think of Judas. And what does the scripture say of him? It would have been better had he never been born. This is why Dante placed traitors in the deepest pit of his perspective in hell. We understand the offense of traitordom, the scandal of it. And so one question that we need to ask is, to what degree does this historical moment that has happened, the riding out of Christ's judgment upon Jerusalem, and the holy terror of his anger brought against them, what is the warning to us? It is this. Kiss the son lest he be angry with you. The temple was no longer necessary, yet the Jews held fast to it. Every Jew you've met who is orthodox in their doctrine, what are they looking for? The destruction of that heathen place of worship that the Muslims have built for the restoration of the temple. Well, what will be offered in that temple? What will they offer? Burnt sacrifices. Why? Because they have no redeemer. They have no hope. And so they are judged. But it is not just historical Jews that will experience judgment for the rejection of the Messiah. It is all who reject Christ who are guilty. And so it is not just necessary that Christ judge Israel and destroy the temple. It is necessary that Christ tear down every high place in our hearts that we may no longer say, I will trust in the works of men, of kings, of nations. But I will, with all humility, come before Christ and say, 
I belong to you. You're my king. This judgment of Israel is to be seen by the Gentiles. And this is how we connect things past and present, things ancient, things eternal, and things in close proximity to us. What what does this have to do with me? Christ judges according to the covenant. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And it was always what? Flee to Christ. It was the message that Noah and his family heard, was it not? Get into the ark. The rain is coming. Come to Christ and find salvation. Christ's faithfulness of character, not just the revelation of his anger against sin, but the clear proclamation of salvation. We don't have to go anywhere, do we? It's not even necessary that you be here. What is necessary is that you sit and you hear the proclamation of Christ's salvation and you say, Lord, I submit. Peace, I believe. That for all who cling to Christ Jesus as the Messiah, you will find salvation. And Christ does not come out and ride against you, but he comes out and he rides on your behalf against those who are against you. Flee to Christ and you will be saved. And I'll close with that in its context, that exhortation to kiss the sun. It comes from Psalm 2, written hundreds of years before the coming of Christ as the Messiah. Now therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth, Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son lest he be angry. And you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. Brothers and sisters, even those who have not yet taken refuge in Christ, today is the day. Do not let Christ ride out in anger but let him ride out in mercy. Let's pray. Oh, Lord, our God.